the conversation here on TYT. I'm your sometimes host, Francesca Fiorentini, and I'm super excited for my guests today. My first guest is, of course, talking to us about the impeachment, what's on everyone's minds right now, just a few weeks into a different administration. We're impeaching the last. His name is John Nichols, national affairs correspondent for the nation, host of Next Left, and author of The Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, The Enduring Legacy of Henry Wallace's Anti-Fascist, Anti-Racist Politics. John, thank you so much for being here. It's an honor to be with you. <laughs> yes, well, so we're recording this on a Friday, Friday the 12th. The defense has rested. They did not take up their full 16 hours in this impeachment trial of, of whether or not Trump is guilty of inciting a riot and insurrection. And, and when this airs, it might be that the Senate has voted to acquit because there are many Republicans who are unconvinced by these arguments that the House managers have made. What's your assessment just broadly and politically about what What's going to come out of this? What, how are the senators, Republican senators, going to come down? Well, uh, I think that that an impeachment trial is always a stress test for a country and a stress test for your system. And it tells you, um, you know, how do you deal with crisis? Mm-hmm. And the answer that this trial seems to be pointing us toward is that the way that we deal with crisis is to go to our partisan corners and not to do what the founders hoped for, which is rise above party, you know, put the, the good of the country first and, and all such noble things. And you know, by all accounts, we seem to be following that pattern. And the questions that we'll look at are the core ones that have been sort of true from the founding of the republic. And that is, um, to what extent can impeachment actually work? Can you hold a president, the most powerful person in the country to account? If you can't, what does that tell you about your your country? Well, it tells you that elites tend to get away with a lot of things. Powerful people tend to get away with a lot of things. That's Mm -hmm, not mm -hmm. a surprise to many listeners to this program, but it's an interesting confirmation that even now when you have the ultimate stress, right? Yeah. Literally an insurrection, an attempt to overthrow an election. You still can't get to a point where these, where everybody agrees that shouldn't happen. Mm-hmm. Well, we know that, and if indeed that's where we end up, that's useful information going forward. Absolutely. I mean, it is. It it does feel like there's so much riding on this vote, like that it is actually quite important, and it's so hard to remember that it's important. Given the fact that we know how Republican senators are most likely going to vote in terms of along their party lines, no matter how in you know uh, how insurrectionary the, that party has become and the party of Trump, has there been a moment in history when an impeachment has like gone the way of what was morally right and what the crime that was committed, and that you know that uh, that actually senators rose above? Their party and voted the other way. Like, has that actually happened? Nope, never. Um, and so that's the good <laughs> news about where we're at, right? Yeah. No president has ever been convicted. Yeah. Throughout the history of the Republic, there have been attempts. It's never gone to that conclusion. That's too bad because ordinary people get in trouble, get convicted all the time. And so what we know is that presidents uh, get a pass. And they right. get a pass because we're too deferential to this office. That's too bad. But 
it's also sort of the saving grace in the moment we're in. Because impeachment should be understand, understood on two levels. One, you have your project, right? You want to uh, impeach, try, and convict an individual who did something horrible. Mm-hmm. And you, that's a Richard Nixon, that's a, a for Watergate, that's a Ronald Reagan for Iran Contra, that's a George W. Bush and Dick Cheney for the Iraq War and crashing the global economy, right? That's what you should impeach people for, and it ought to come to fruition. Uh, just never happens. So, uh, do we give up on it? No. You understand impeachment on another level, the, the separate level from the core project, and that is what does it tell the people of the country? How do we use it as an educational tool, as a tool that challenges our politics, that challenges it to get better? And in that case, I think the brilliant uh, presentations by Jamie Raskin and the House impeachment managers uh, is really good. It's instructive. It tells us as a country uh, that there is another way and that our, we're not going to get our solution out of the Senate. Cool. Then mm-hmm. we need to take that into our politics. We need yeah. to take that into our elections. We need to identify those who won't hold Donald Trump to account as the same as Donald Trump. Don't ever let them try and get out of that corner. They want to decide with him at this point. Great. We've got clarity. Now let's deal with them. Yeah. I mean, it, and it for sure, I mean, what's been running through my mind this entire time is why would they vote to convict when doing so would implicate them as well as having incited violence, you know, for promoting things like the Stop the Steal rallies as multiple representatives did, as Senator Ted Cruz did in terms of fanning the flames of election fraud. You wrote a whole book about impeachment, calling it a genius idea. How could we make it better? Does it have to do with reforming the Senate? Does it have to do with reforming Forming the two-party system. Yes, absolutely. But to get to that, we've got to master the system as it exists now, right? Because unfortunately, the same thing that makes impeachment uh, never come to fruition is the fact that you got to get to two-thirds. Right. Well, the same thing that you got to when you, if you want to amend the Constitution of the United States, there are all these barriers to it. Yeah. Uh, structural reform, even the Senate, has all these barriers. And so, at the end of the day. We've got to recognize that you take a moment like this and you harness the energy of it and turn it back into your politics, both in uh, on the street in a non-electoral form. We have to know that that there's some solutions aren't going to come in the U.S. Senate, right? And so we have to have activism in that regard. But then, to the extent that we go into active into electoral politics, what we mm-hmm. have to focus on is holding people to account in the ways that they will not hold themselves to account, and that requires us to demand a democratic party that is far more militant, that is far more activist, that that does seek to punish, and that sees the word bipartisan as a dangerous and destructive term. Mm. Now, we were taught that bipartisanship was good, right? We were taught that it was healthy. And you know when we were taught that? At a time when the Republican Party was in favor of civil rights and the environment. In the 1960s, the Republicans were, there were a whole bunch of Republicans who were great on civil rights. There were Republicans who were ahead of the curve on the environment. There were Republicans who were leading anti-war figures during the Vietnam War, right? So bipartisanship was possible in that moment. In this moment, it is an, it's a fool's mission. And so 
the, the smarter move is if you happen to be engaged with the Democratic Party, if that's your trip, uh, to make the Democratic Party clearer and more focused and more militant as a real counter and as a real tool to change the politics. And, I, and I'm not sure the Democrats are there yet. No, definitely not. I mean, it takes freshman Congress people like Cory Bush to be the ones introducing legislation to actually kick out, you know, any Congress people who participated and helped, you know, give comfort, as the 14th Amendment says, to any of the insurrectionists. But I want to, you know, ask you and push back on the idea that once and if, you know, we don't know this is going to be aired in the future, that these senators vote to acquit. You know, the security agencies have said that will embolden the extremists that mobs the Capitol. That day that will embolden sort of the most extreme fringes, the Republican Party. So, how do we confront that and the ways that the right is going to be, um, you know, bolstered by this acquittal? Look, Donald Trump has already shown us his model. You know, when he if he gets an acquittal, he will use it as a tool to you know claim he's vindicated to to strengthen his base. Jamie Raskin's talked a lot about this as the great danger of not convicting. Yes. And so we understand there's a danger. There's a danger there. There's a challenge there. Obviously, you want to you want to monitor it. You want to try and deal with it. You want to make sure that that monitoring it and dealing with it doesn't impinge on the civil rights and civil liberties of all of, all of our American people. So there are dangers and threats there that we have to be conscious of. But then there's a final element. Now I'll, I'll suggest this is the most important. The way to counter the extremism of the right is to show that government actually can do good things for working class and poor and disenfranchised people. And so you want to deal with all of these threats, have a democratic governance under Joe Biden and the Democrats who control the House and the Senate actually do a whole bunch of great big useful things. Get people $2,000, not one payment, get it 2,000 a month, get people a $15 wage, go big, on progressive policies, and you'll be surprised at how you grab that that center of energy, that center of power away from the right. It's possible to do, but it's not possible to do by tinkering around things or going down the middle. It can only be done with a militant politics that happens to be on the right side of history, not on the wrong side of history. I love talking to you, John Nichols. Uh, you've got so many wonderful books out. One of them exactly about impeachment, the genius of impeachment, the founder's cure for royalism, and then the fight for the soul of the Democratic Party, as you're saying, and talking about the legacy of Henry Wallace and anti-fascist, anti-racist politics. I hope the party can get back there. Um, and until then, please come back. I love your insights, and thank you so much for joining us on in this, of course, once again, historic moment. I'm honored to be with you and it's been a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Thanks a lot, take care. Welcome back everyone to the conversation. I'm Francesca Fiorentini and my my next guest is here to talk about the massive farm workers protests that have been going on in India for months now. Her name is Sabrina Mali and she is a DC based journalist. Sabrina, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So. This is a story that has been going on for months now, but in the last couple of weeks, because of you know some tweets from people like Rihanna and Greta Thunberg, um, I think the broader, uh, at least American public, is starting to understand that there is a huge farm workers movement and uh, rising up in India, stationed outside of New Delhi 
Can you tell us why? What's happened and, and why why so much resistance? Well, I think more than a farmer's um, farmers protest, this is more of a human rights issue. Um, it all started back in September when uh, the Prime Minister Modi's administration decided to implement farming laws that would basically deregulate the current laws that they have right now. Um, essentially making it easier for corporations to implement rules and set prices for these farmers to get paid for their crops. Um, it wasn't consulted by farmers unions. It wasn't something that was done at the behest of the state. It was kind of something that was just imposed upon them. And it's caused a huge uproar ever since then. There have been protests almost every day since the beginning, but has grown exponentially um, as recently as the past few weeks. Um, we saw it come to a head during um, Indian Republic Day on January 26th when there was clashes between protesters, supporters, and the police. Mm -hmm. And you're right, it has gained a lot of attention because of people like Rihanna and um, large name celebrities like that. So um, I think it's a huge issue. Like I said, it's more than a farmer's issue. It's, it's starting to test what it means for India to be a democracy. Mm. Wow, yeah, and and so and because of that, and I think in the United States we um, don't have the same um, massive amount of uh, like family subsistence farmers in this country. Yes. In large part, they've been consolidated, and so and in some ways that is what Indian farmers are actually fighting against, which is a yes. seems to be a corporatization of the agrarian sector. So just explain like what's the role of farmers and farm workers in India and like their their um, importance in the economy? So a large part of Indian farmers aren't these part of these huge conglomerates. They're small farmers with one, two acre farms. This is their main livelihood. Unlike American farming where you see, you know, our, our massive farms, our massive dairy farms, a massive amounts of farming that we have like that. So the livelihood is dependent, their livelihood is dependent on these, um, on their small farms. Right. Essentially taking a small farmer and Putting them up against a big corporation, that's just a recipe for disaster. Um, when we had our farm bills passed uh, in 2018, that also was a sort of a deregulation. Um, and we've seen even in America how farmer suicide have increased. And in India, it's the same way too. Farmer suicides have increased exponentially. And a lot of the reasons is because the government, government in these nations aren't giving protection to these small farmers. Um, so it's, it's just going to keep on growing especially with the regulation. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's a huge amount and we're talking millions and millions of people and millions and millions of voters. Um, so what do you think, what's been the response from the Indian government, the Modi government? Have they back uh, walked back any of these uh, reforms? Do they, are they feeling the pressure? So they absolutely are feeling the pressure, but I think it's not for um, the reasons of the protesters because he did just push back implementing the laws for only 18 months. And so that's kind of just putting a bandaid on a major gash. They they don't plan on, as far as I can see right now, they don't plan on repealing these laws. So, uh, and, I, and I don't foresee the Modi government doing that at all. Um, unlike, uh, unlike say President Trump in the most recent election, uh, Modi won by a popular vote of massive amounts. So he does have a huge support, um, a, a huge support of a lot of like India, uh, Indian nationalism. And um, it's just going to uh, just fuel his, his sense of not backing down. Right, 
right? He feels like he's got the mandate. And and to that end, you know, with the rise of Modi and and the BJP, I know there's been like a rise of Hindu nationalism generally, and what some would even call like Hindu fascism, as there has been many more hate crimes and and violence perpetrated against religious minorities like Muslims. But also, I know a large amount of these farmers are Punjabi and are Sikh. Is there, yeah. is there like a, you know, what is what is the role then of um, kind of almost that 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 nationalism and the Hindu nationalism? Is that playing into what we're seeing now at all? Absolutely, uh, people are using uh, that Hindu nationalist movement, and I think Modi's using it as a way to fuel his voters, fuel the heads of different states in India that are BJP ruled, um, and it's caused a lot of strife. Whereas this was a really a movement about farming has turned into a movement about religion, has mm. turned into a movement about Sikhs against um, against the overarching uh, religious majority, which are Hindus in India. So I think that has definitely played into um, this whole idea, which in essence, this is not what it started as. And honestly, a lot of farmers um, protesting are also not Sikhs. Um, they're from different states in India. So, uh, but, but for some reason, we've seen the... Um, the Indian government just uh, really attack um, and kind of scapegoat uh, the Sikh farmers because that's mm-hmm. kind of who it, it's easy to point out. It's easy uh, to see a front facing. So, right, it's it's nationalism generally, which is divide and conquer. Um, yeah. And it's easy if you just paint farmers as one thing to say, oh, this is not a mass movement. This is not multiple religions. It's just, you know, this one group. Um, yeah. I, I also want to talk about the backlash. So even people like Rihanna and Greta Thunberg, you know, there was massive backlash on Twitter against what they had tweeted, which was Rihanna's was like, why aren't we talking about the repression yeah. and the blackouts? So I guess I also want to talk about the backlash. But what what about that? Um, yeah, what about that silencing and what is happening online whenever you bring up these issues? So, so actually, Rihanna didn't even say that. She just said, "Why aren't we talking about this?" She didn't give an opinion. <laughs> she, she didn't even voice. She didn't even voice a side that she was choosing. But the backlash was pictures of Chris Brown beating her up. There were there were threats of death. There were threats of rape. It was just so visceral and so degrading. And you see that with a lot of the women who have spoken out. Um, you know, a lot of journalists have been imprisoned because of them, their voice and them speaking out. Um, a, a Dalit activist in India named Naldeep Kaur was just imprisoned without any due cause. So yeah. women in general are, I, I feel like, getting the brunt end of this hatred that's going on on the internet. The Indian government threatened to jail Twitter employees for keeping accounts up that were anti-BJP, anti-farmer movements. Um, people. I mean, India is supposed to be the biggest democracy in the world. A huge part of a democracy is freedom of speech, freedom of the press. India ranks 142 out of 180 on the Press Freedom Index. So they're repressing voices. That's why the news we're getting from India is really on the ground reporting because the state-controlled media isn't allowing these types of narratives and voices to be heard. Um, So even somebody in America like me speaking, it uh, it does make me feel a little uncomfortable to see what the backlash is potentially going to be for me. So it's it's just hard to be able to want to have a voice, want to be able to speak while also knowing that you're going to get some sort of hate or backlash against this. And yeah. I'm sure for people with big platforms like Rihanna, Mina um, Harris, Kamala Harris is uh, the vice president's niece. Just a lot of people are just getting so much, uh, I guess, lack of hate online. Sure. 
Sure, and let me ask now that we've got a new you know, president in the United States, we know that Donald Trump was very close and cozy with Modi. Um, and I just wanted to know your thoughts on what you think the United States' posture is going to be going forward to you know, when it comes to the Modi government. I think as our government positions itself as somebody who is in this administration looking to advance human rights in every ally, in every ally that we have and things like that. Um, I don't think the US is gonna go so far as to impose sanctions. Um, Modi was actually banned from coming to the US in 2014 because of his, um, how he, what, what he, what happened in the state of Gujarat when he was um, head of state there. So I don't know if it would go back to that again, but I do see the US because some congressional leaders have already made statements speaking out against this. So I do see the US government maybe on a federal scale speaking out and saying something, um, but I'm not sure if they're gonna go, like I said, go as far as to impose sanctions or you know, really uh, damn the government of India. Finally, like what, what's a way that you feel like you know, everyday people in the United States could show solidarity or is there a call to action or a call from the farm, farmers movement for global solidarity in, that you know of? Yeah, I mean, they just want people to share their stories, share their news. They want to be heard. Um, I think a lot of these Punjabi farmers feel like their voice for so long has been repressed. They've been made to be this this evil people that are that are just trying to overthrow a Hindu government, trying to overthrow a way of life, and they just want to be heard. They just want their human rights to be heard and uh, just you know given the same freedoms as other people in India, given the same rights as other um, sectors in India. And farming yeah. is so important. Obviously, no farmers, no food. So, absolutely, yeah. I remember uh, an interview with a farmer here in the United States who was like, "You don't like immig- immigrants? Don't eat." It's like yeah. we've, you know, the the politics of food, whether it's in India, whether it's here in the United States, and it, the ties into immigration are huge. So it's fascinating. Thank you so much, Sabrina Molly. Please follow her work, and and thank you so much for writing on this. Thank you so much for having me.